Thanks for joining me here on Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, the founder of Bare Bones Yoga. I'm a yoga teacher with over 15 years of experience, a certified personal trainer, and an entrepreneur. My mission is this, to help you develop into a purpose-driven, confident yoga teacher, one who truly understands anatomy and how to share it clearly and confidently so that you can help your students learn and as a result, grow your impact and connection. On the podcast here, you'll get a blend of both anatomy learning, stories from teachers, interviews with others in the field, and a dose of personal development. Once you listen to today's episode, visit my website at barebonesyoga.com for free resource guides for teachers. Download any and all of them, including one of my most popular tools, my sequence building template. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen today. Let's get into today's episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I am your host, Karen Fabian, and this is episode 153. So I'm recording this episode on October 18th, 2021. It is a Monday, as I always, always try to post on Mondays. And I actually was fortunate enough in that today's guest uh, actually met with me today. So this recording or this episode is an interview that I actually recorded today. It just happened to fall on a Monday. So I'm really excited to bring you this episode and I'm going to be diving into that one pretty quickly. This uh, intro will be short so that um, you can spend the majority of your time listening to the, um, the amazing guests that I have today. I just want to do a quick reminder to let you know that this coming Wednesday, the 20th, I'm going to be hosting a free workshop on um, different concepts and cueing as it relates to yoga anatomy. That'll be at 2 p.m. Eastern time. It is free. You can join uh, me at two o'clock Eastern time or catch it on the replay, which will be available for a couple of days. To sign up for that workshop, just go to my website, barebonesyoga.com, and the events page has the link. So today I am truly honored to invite guest and to have guest uh, yoga teacher Jules Mitchell on the show. And Jules has released uh, a book called Yoga Biomechanics, Stretching Redefined. And I had an opportunity to um, meet with her today, to interview her today about the book which I read cover to cover in a couple of weeks. It's an amazing book. I would highly recommend it. Um, We do talk in this episode and you'll hear at the end um, kind of some guidance that Jules gives about the use of the book. And I think that is something that's potentially uh, helpful to just catch in our last bit of conversation um, uh, as as a potential reader of the book. I will say I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I think for many of you yoga teachers, you will absolutely love the book as well and find it truly, truly interesting and eye opening. Jules uh, empowers yoga teachers through education by combining her extensive study of biomechanics with the tradition of yoga. And it is her passion to share the most useful and applicable findings from exercise science and to build confidence in yoga teachers by giving them a well-grounded understanding of related research. She leads her own advanced teacher training, teaches workshops and immersion courses worldwide, 
and offers an ongoing selection of online education and mentoring programs. As an adjunct faculty member at Arizona State University, she serves as a yoga consultant on various research studies measuring the effects of yoga therapy on special populations. Her future research goals include studying the effects of asana on tissue adaptation and bridging the gap between research in exercise science and the practice of yoga. So there is more that I can share about Jules and about her book, but I really uh, would love to dive into that episode and give you an opportunity to do the same uh, as quickly as possible. So I'm gonna leave the rest of um, this conversation for the conversation that I just finished with Jules Mitchell. Let's go to that tape and I can't wait for you to hear this one. Here we go. All right, so Jules is on. So I wanna first start out by welcoming you to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. Hello, Jules. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course, of course. So um, I, I'm going to just dive right in and just give us a chance to kind of hit the ground running. I know a lot of times when I listen to podcasts, the long drawn out intros can be sometimes like, oh, come on, just get to it. <laughs> so I definitely, I definitely want to do that with you because I value your time so, so much. So let me just start diving right in with my first question for you. And that is, can you share what motivated you to write this book? Because as I was reading it, and I mentioned to you before we started recording, I just recently finished it. On some level, right from the start, I sensed that you were in part possibly motivated by a desire to clarify some key concepts for yoga teachers, things that maybe are misunderstood or misrepresented. Yeah, I mean, what motivated me to write the book was for me to get clear on those things that were misunderstood or misrepresented. Mm -hmm. uh, the questions that I had in my you know, early years of, of training where I was constantly being given conflicting information, you know, from simple things like, can, can we round the back or can we not round the back? I don't understand. Like, why is it, why in one, in one style of yoga, do you slump forward in a seated forward bend? And why in another, is it like rigid spine? And, and, and the, the, the validations, I would ask questions and the validations always supported the reason that was, that was given for that particular approach. But what I felt confused was that they weren't invalidating the other reason. <laughs> So mm -hmm. it just felt like a lot of people doing what they felt like they wanted to do <laughs> and mm -hmm. then coming up with a bunch of reasons why it was the right way. And I just decided, okay, I need to get clear on some of this stuff. And so I just went down an academic path. Um, just, I come from an academic family and I went down an academic path and basically it was revealed to me that I had no idea what I was talking about and possibly many of the people that I'd been asking questions didn't know what they were talking about either. Right. And so I felt like a lot of just pushing around of anecdotal information. And so I decided I need to get to the bottom of this. And it was a very long journey, mm -hmm. um, but, but I, I got there <laughs> eventually. Yeah. I mean, it's very clear from the book, I mean, that you did. And I think the thing that struck me was that 
and it's interesting for you to frame it by saying you wanted to get clear because it's clear when you read the book that you're kind of agnostic in your approach to where this is going to end up. You just were kind of diving into the the research and the definitions and the academic information wherever it led you, which when you think about it is kind of like how a scientist works, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, it was definitely a, let me see if there's a nugget of insight in here that would help me formulate a better thought. Let me see if there's another little nugget of, of knowledge that will help me understand this argument a little bit better. Um, so there was that, which was my, which was my process. Mm-hmm. It wasn't my process for the book per se. Um, the book was actually deliberately written in that manner. I had a, I had a writing coach who was a, a, a good friend of mine. And he, he actually advised me to start with the contents of the last chapter, which was chapter six, mm-hmm. um, and kind of work backwards. He said, you know, make all your bold statements up front and then defend it throughout. And I thought that that was not a good approach. We, I, you know, I won. <laughs> we, we disagreed right. about the, the process and clearly I won. It was my book. Um, right. But but I wanted, I, I felt if I came up with some bold statements in the beginning, I would just alienate people yes. who were attached to their belief already, um, or, or that were just, would, I would just create more confusion. And so I really intentionally laid it out where it's like, okay, let's talk about like exactly what these terms mean so that I, I'm kind of carrying you along for the ride that maybe you're starting to question some of these ideas um, and that's what like the thought provokers are all about. It's like, I ask questions in the book and the sidebars where I don't really provide answers because I want to share with you this process that you might, you, you, you might have thought, you know, the answer before you started reading. And now you think you might not have known the answer, but you think you actually understand the question a little bit better. And so there's like some insight ahead that you might, you might get clear on this by the time you finish the book. <laughs> that was, that was my plan at least. Yeah. I mean, it really, in a way, and this is just something that's coming to me as you're talking, it really does require that the reader be fairly coachable to mm-hmm. open their mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I can do that. Although I would think that sometimes when I am really kind of set in my ways around a particular way of thinking, it can be difficult for me. So I think for those out there who haven't yet read the book, I think kind of knowing going into it, from hearing this conversation that it's good to kind of take a deep breath and just kind of open your brain and be coachable is mm-hmm. a tip for the reader. Yeah. No, that, I mean, that's a really great way of putting it. I mean, there's yeah. like, I'll just use an example. So people sure. have something concrete to understand, but like the, just the concept of compression and tension, you know, mm-hmm. the compression and tension is used, you know, through um, like yin yoga and Bernie Clark's world in like a, a conversation about range of motion, like what stops you is, is you know, Bernie's language. Right. Um, and there's, there's a, that's great. It's amazing. But when I'm talking about biomechanics, we use compression and tension quite differently. It's not mm-hmm. in the realm of, it's not in the realm of, of range of motion. It's in the realm of force transmission, which is mm-hmm. completely something different. And mm-hmm. so early on, I kind of posed this question, like, because you know, in, in one of the thought provokers and one of the sidebars to consider it in a different way, because if you're stuck on the definition that you might've learned through reading Bernie's anatomy books, you know, then, then you're just going to be more confused <laughs> because right. I was like very clear, like I'm talking about something else and 
it might change the way you think about certain poses. It might not, but you have to at least consider it. So that's yeah, a, it's funny. It's almost like the word compression can be viewed almost in a clinical sense as it's applied to certain conditions or in the sense that you're describing, which is just a property of tissue. Yeah. Yep. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. I, it's funny. And even though I read it and hearing you talk about it, that's another thing that, or that's something that's just striking me differently. Okay, cool. That's, that's a great, that's a great example. So well, it's definitely not a book you read one time. <laughs> yeah, well, for sure, for sure. And we're going to talk at the end. I want to definitely give you an opportunity to share about the book club. Cause I think that that's a dynamic for this kind of book, um, a dynamic way to go through it and, and it's going to yeah. be really helpful for people. Um, so, you know, again, just to kind of give people a sense of the framework of the book, when you look at the chapters themselves, they're divided into a handful of, of topics. So biomechanics, stretching, mechanical behavior, structure and composition, tissue adaptation, and emerging perspectives, which is what you referred to before the, um, the colleague that you were working with wanted to at the beginning and ended up at the end. So it's filled with, you know, in those categories, data from studies, definitions around key concepts in human movement and threaded through it, as you described yourself a few moments ago, this like cohesive narrative that keeps the reader both on topic and on this learning journey. So, you know, especially even for those who are out there who are thinking about writing a book and are curious about the process, um, how did that process go for you? What went into actually writing it on top of, let alone it was awful. All you're doing? Oh, was it? <laughs> It's awful. Really? <laughs> what, what, um, I'm, it just publishing is is difficult. It's yeah. a difficult industry. Um, partially, it's a changing industry. Yeah. yeah. And and I think in the the days past, pub, niche publishers like this would would hire, you know, academics to write the books. Mm -hmm. And so the academics were, you know, employed by a university and, and where it was, it was encouraged for them to write and, and, and publish. <laughs> um, so it was like part of their job. Well, right. even though they also probably taught some classes, the reading and researching was part of their, they were paid for that. Right. Well, as these niche publishers expand to, you know, yes, I'm an academic, but I'm not, I'm not paid by a university. So, so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, with, as they expand to other authors, a lot of my friends and colleagues, um, the, the model hasn't changed. So you're, you're really putting yourself out there because it's, it's not very well-paid work. There's no advance that, you know, it's not, mm -hmm. I'm not writing a coffee table book for random house publishing. That's a different right. story, right? I'm not, mm -hmm. I didn't write chicken soup for the soul. If anyone's old enough <laughs> to remember that book. So it's really a labor of love. It's a lot yeah. of work. And I don't know that had I not first written a master's thesis that it, it would have even ever come to fruition in the book because the master's thesis was kind of the precursor to this, which was a, a disaster. I mean, it was great for me, but it was, I was just like throwing everything at the wall to see what would stick. Mm -hmm. And so so it didn't, it didn't have a narrative the way this book did. It didn't have, you know, it was just, it was just like, this is what I think. This is what I've learned. Right. Um, but at least it gave me a framework. And I had, I, I went into this book with, you know, a, a library of two, 300 research papers that I, I, I knew would kind of guide me to, to the story in the end. Like I had all, I had all different, had all the yoga research done. I'd had all the spinal research done. I'd had all the stretching research done. 
So I, I was very confident in these areas. Um, if, if you're, you know, not, don't have that background, the book will probably, uh, writing a book will probably be in a longer journey, mm -hmm. at least if you want it to be a, a cited book like this one. Mm -hmm. So, and it took me about three years as it was, because I was trying yeah. to work in the middle of it all. Right, <laughs> you know? right. Um, um, you know, I, I interviewed a friend of mine last week who wrote a book, very different um, subject matter, more on uh, focusing on meditation called Still Life. And she, um, so it was a little bit, obviously very different in terms of content, but I guess I'm just wondering as you're, as you're talking about your experience in writing it, she described a feeling of once it's out there, um, not really fear, but just I wonder what people will think of this and feeling a little bit vulnerable. Did you experience any of that, especially since some of what you were doing is sort of, I don't even want to say challenging, but kind of nudging people to think beyond maybe ways of thinking that they've held for a while? Um, I, I would say I, I just have that feeling every day. <laughs> I don't think it has to do with the book being out. Um, yeah. I think I had that feeling before the book was out because I was already teaching this content and blogging and writing workshops and being present on social media, you know, so there, I'm, a, I was already sharing these ideas and I definitely have that every day. Um, so I don't, I don't think the book made it any worse. In fact, it might have been a little bit the opposite. Like mm -hmm. the book kind of validated a little bit, like, look, I put three years of my life into this. I, you know, some of these sentences took me days to write a single sentence. Cause I, 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 I wrote as accurately as I could. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not casual language like like this podcast. There, right. you know, sentences are packed with information and they're factual and they're um, they they hopefully lead the reader to ask the appropriate next questions, but not take them down a tangent of stuff that is irrelevant. Like mm -hmm. microbiology is an important concept. Biochemistry, they are, these are important, but but it's not a book about biochemistry. So I, can I talk about, you know, enzymes and hormones, just growth hormones, just enough that it piques your curiosity, but it doesn't take you down a different path. Right. Um, so I think once the book was done, I almost felt like, okay, well, at least I've validated that, like, I can do this. <laughs> I mean, right. you know, like, like, I feel a little bit, a little bit better about teaching something uh, maybe contentious or controversial because I've, I've put the work in. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it was wasn't just impulsive. Yeah. 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 And I could yeah. see when we're on social media, everything is really impulsive. So conversations you have in that context. And I, I know in, in the book, you even talked about a thread regarding a particular posture that was being discussed in the social media sphere and um, some of the back and forth that happens. So yeah, I can appreciate. And I think the readers will appreciate that this is a very methodical, intentional process that you're taking people through that's supported by data and evidence. So, you know, even if people at the end of it have different perspectives, it's not going to be for looking at the process and saying it was haphazard mm -hmm. or yes. less. <laughs> yes. um, yes. You know, I, I just put uh, this one question down just because I always think it's interesting when people share, um, you know, a little bit about their own development in terms of landing on a particular area of interest. And I, I loved in the book when you shared that you grew up near a fault line in Southern California and that your dad was an earthquake engineer. And you went on in that passage to say that you learned at a young age that the most stable structures were the ones that could bend, twist and sway with the force of the earth's moving surface. So I was just curious 
you know, about your, your upbringing from that regard in terms of having his impact and how on you and how that impacted the choices you made when it came to, you know, even just your academic studies and everything you've done yeah. so far. Um, I mean, I'm definitely a product of my parents. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's as like direct. Well, it is direct. It just took a long time to get there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, my undergrad was in women's studies, but I did minor in mathematics. So that kind of mm -hmm. helped. Um, and that was, you know, again, uh, probably influenced by my parents who were always strong advocates for, for me in math and science. Yep. Um, and then I ended up going for a second degree in, in, in engineering, actually, in uh, structural engineering. And I ended up not finishing that degree. Both my parents were sick and they've since passed, but I just had, a, and, and the oldest child, so I just had a lot of responsibilities. Yeah. Um, and so I ended up not finishing that degree and partially because I knew I just, didn't want to wear a hard hat and work in right. waste management, which is like mm -hmm. kind of where civil engineering was going to take you down that path, right. you know, which is what my dad did. Right. Um, and so I just kind of like, kind of went through life, always knowing that I was going to do something academic. Uh, that was, you know, my mom being a professor at UCLA. So it was just a very like, what am I going to do next? What am I going to do next? I studied a hundred things, a hundred times. I've, I've taken courses in every subject you could ever imagine. Mm -hmm. um, I was always like enrolling in the university for fun and taking a course. Mm -hmm. uh, so it wasn't until I stumbled into kinesiology that I found biomechanics. And I actually didn't know that biomechanics existed. I, I knew I wanted questions. I wanted to answer questions about stretching and overstretching in yoga. So I figured, well, maybe I'll just go down to the kinesiology department and ask them about their graduate program and you know, exercise science. Let's see what, mm -hmm. let's see what they have. And the, the advisor uh, took one look at my, my long list of courses I've taken um, and, and partial degrees and completed degrees. And she said, Oh, we're going to put you in biomechanics. And I was like, mm. what is that? You know, she was like, well, it's like physics. <laughs> and I was like, what, <laughs> you know, like, but she said, you know, everybody that comes into kinesiology has a really strong biology background. Um, mm -hmm. but very few, very seldom do they have a background in math and physics and that's huh. what biomechanics requires. Yep. And so I, like, I didn't see, I didn't search for it, you know, but it, mm -hmm. I ended up, it ended up being a, an influence of my father, obviously, but it wasn't yeah. like I set out, you know, he didn't say to me, Oh, let's, let's find engineering for the human body. That would be really cool for you. Right. Yeah, it didn't happen that way. <laughs> right. When you, at this point in your path, were you teaching yoga at that time? So it felt like it was. Yes. So, okay. Yes. So I had, while I was caring for, for sick parents uh, who were not married. So uh, there was like two sets, you know, it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't a yep. two for one. It was two sets. Um, yeah. I was, I was teaching yoga and I was bartending. So mm -hmm. it gave me the freedom to be, to take a bunch of classes in school. So yes, I had definitely been teaching yoga and I knew that my graduate degree was going to be to like help me with whatever I was doing in yoga. Like that yeah. was the plan all along. So yeah. that was like how I ended up with that master's thesis in like, it was about stretching. Cause it was really like about, okay, imagine you were going to write a book for yoga teachers. That, right. That's your, that's your thesis project. And that's what I did. So. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, I can imagine since you were already teaching yoga, when you found that professor and she connected you with this field of study, you were probably like, oh my gosh, this is such a great match for, for what I'm doing. Well, it was a little bit when she told me, but I, I still didn't know what it was. <laughs> and then, um, and it took this, by the way, this is, this didn't happen over the course of two years. This happened over the course of a decade, you know, cause life is busy. So, yep. um, and then there were all kinds of you know, with an undergrad in women's studies, there were all kinds of deficiencies that I had to enter a graduate program. Like, yes, I had, you know, I had anatomy and I had chemistry and I had physics and that kind of stuff, but there were, I didn't have motor learning and there were all, so I was just taking all these courses and it wasn't until I got into my graduate, first graduate biomechanics course. So this was probably two or three years after I'd had that meeting with the advisor mm-hmm. and, um, and the, the, t- teacher who ended up becoming my thesis advisor was, was drawing on the board, these like graphs, these stress strain curves, and these, you know, these graphs that are all throughout my book. And I, that's when I was like, Oh my God, (laughs) I, I like, I was like, there's actually like, we actually understand how tendons behave. Like we have, we have graphs for this. Like I have, why am I 15 years into teaching yoga and nobody has ever told me this before? Good like, question. this is, this is like mind boggling. And I'm looking around the room and all these 20 year olds are like sleeping. Cause they're totally bored in graduate school or like 22. <laughs> and I'm, you know, my late thirties, like totally yeah. jazzed about it. Looking yeah. around the room, goes, why is nobody as excited about this as I am? Like, right. this is huge. Right. So that really changed everything for me. I was like, this is what biomechanics is. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. And it's certainly, as you say, a comment on the path that yoga teachers take from a training perspective that, you know, the information is not part and parcel of kind of the standard recipe. Yeah. And I mean, I was, I was an, I was an actively seeking like I was as a yoga teacher, I was actively seeking education. Yeah. Like I would go to every single, you know, course or weekend thing I could go to, or back then there were, there were a lot of conferences. I don't know if you remember that things mm-hmm. have changed quite a bit, but I would travel, you know, to, to yoga journal conferences. And yeah. I remember taking a whole thing on stretching and like, I didn't know anything about sarcomeres, so I couldn't follow along, <laughs> but, 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 you know, like I, like I was looking for these answers. Uh, So it wasn't like I was just, you know, I just like enrolled in a training and then never, never thought about it again. Um, I I looked and it it took me to until graduate school to find it. And then that's what the book is for. Now, I mean, not everybody has the, has the interest, the, Mm -hmm. um, the scheduling, like, you know, I don't have children. I'm not married. I was really easy for me to go to school. Not Mm -hmm. everybody can do that. And mm-hmm. so, and not everybody needs a, a master's degree to teach yoga, right. but some of these ideas distilled in a usable way, I think is important. And that's why I wrote the book. I was like, let me help people get what I got in 10 years of academics in, you know, 200 pages. Yeah, that's, that's about. definitely clear. And I think, I think it, it is, you know, as I read it, I was like, definitely what you said before, this is going to need to be read again, because some of these concepts are new, I think. Uh, and I have a science background and an academic background in not exactly these areas, but I was definitely like, wow, I'm gonna, this, this is new to me. Looking at this information in this way is definitely something that I need to look at again. So 
Um, yeah, I, and I could see, I could see that. So since this is like a perfect springboard into the next topic, and you know, as I kind of was thinking about, there's obviously so much that I would love for you to share uh, with the listener. I tried to hone in on um, one particular uh, category of terminology that is so um, frequently used by yoga teachers, and that has to do with stretching. You've brought it up a couple of times already in the conversation today. And I think, um, you know, I think it would be really helpful for the listener to hear and to appreciate that number one, there are different kinds of stretching (laughs) and number two, to start to think about what are the definitions um, for these different types. I know this is probably a a couple of hours long conversation in and of itself. I was Mm -hmm. thinking if it's (laughs) possible for you to even just touch on the names of the different types of stretching and even just a highlight blurb for each one, I'll I'll leave that up to you to, to do. But I was just thinking that one subject is so so much a part of everything we do as yoga teachers in terms of our languaging and how we share what we're actually offering people. Yeah. Um, I'll do that maybe with a little slight modification Mm -hmm. um, because I think if I just kind of highlight and identify the six types of stretching, it gets to be kind of um, academic and boring pretty quickly, sure, but I'll, I'll, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll touch on some of them and I'll, and I'll ask some, I'll, I'll ask some good questions Absolutely. to make people think. Um, so, so the chapter two of my book does highlight different types of stretching. I, I listed six. Yep. Um, there are, you know, depends on the authority, <laughs> you know, most, I think the ACSM would say that there would be technically four, I mm-hmm. added resistance stretching because I, I find it to be such a powerful technique, but it mm-hmm. could, you could easily put resistance stretching into a PNF. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, right. Mm-hmm. So if you wanted to, just depends on how you, how you do a PNF, um, a PNF mm-hmm. being a proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation, mm-hmm. which is a type of stretching technique that is actually not at all a stretching technique. It is a neuromuscular f- facilitation technique. It's actually um, a therapy that is uh, used for, uh, people with neurological conditions and the sort of contract, relax approach of a PNF that, that we see in training and, uh, personal training and even in physio um, is kind of the, the part of the, a bigger system of PNF that was hijacked for, for, and applied to range of motion. Right. Um, and so that I think is very interesting because then if you start looking into resistance stretching and how resistance stretching oftentimes isn't about pushing end range. So that's why it can maybe fit to a PNF. How did, how did that all become about more flexibility? So that's like, that, that's the one place to start. There's, there's these techniques that require you to contract, but somehow in the world of stretching, they're still about range of motion. Mm-hmm. So then there's other types of stretching, you know, that are kind of bouncing stretching. Like I used to do in PE as a kid yes. uh, that, that was went out of fashion for a while for being dangerous. And now it's back in fashion and you can even get certifications in it. And I have one. <laughs> um, wow. So I think that's kind of funny how things go with trends. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's like dynamic stretching, which is kind of like joint circles and warming up. Um, and then there's just holding, which is usually what we do in yoga. We hold a pose and 
you could make those more active or more passive depending on what's holding you there. So there are these, all these different kind of types of, of stretching. And I guess the real question is what are the parameters of each and what effect do they have? And, and are you choosing the right type for the effect? And that is a, that is what you said several hours, actually do a three yeah. hour stretching webinar and talk about some of these things. Um, and I think just knowing that there's all of that out there helps you real, like realize that you might not be doing what you think you're doing when you tell someone mm-hmm. to stretch. <laughs> right. And then the, the next thing I'd like to add to that is the idea that like, what is a stretch to begin with? Yeah. There's all of these that I've listed, like I talk about in chapter two are about range of motion, but not all stretch is about range of motion. So that clouds things even further. And that's why like in my, in the chapter two, near the end, I say, and that's it about range of motion, because this is not a book about range of motion. So therefore we're putting that aside Mm-hmm. And that the, so the book is not really about stretching, hence the title stretching redefined, right? Because the, there are other ways of stretching that don't require end range. And one of those would be contracting your muscle. Mm-hmm. You know, if you contract your bicep, it pulls on your bicep tendon. So that bicep tendon gets stretched. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so what's the a... difference? You know what I mean? What does yeah. the tendon know the difference between me clasping my hand behind my back to stretch my bicep tendon or me doing a bicep curl, a really heavy bicep curl, which is stretching the tendon. So there's mm. like, there's, there's stretching and then there's tension, <laughs> you know? Right. And like, and so that, it's really like, what are you trying to do? And is what you're doing satisfying what you're trying to do? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And as I'm listening to you, I mean, I'm wondering for, for the listener who's maybe a newer yoga teacher or maybe a yoga teacher who's been teaching for some time and isn't familiar with this kind of deeper dive into some of what they have kind of just assumed, right? Well, yoga is about stretching. Um, I'm wondering if you can just quickly just talk, when I hear range of motion, I think like physical therapy, I think goniometer, I think improving joint mobility. And so in this little part of the conversation, we're kind of sort of, if I'm hearing it correctly, sort of juxtaposing stretching and range of motion, or kind of making a distinction between the two for the, for just like for the listener, what are we saying range of motion is when we're trying to do something to address range of motion? Um, I'll just use the word flexibility. Okay. Being more flexible. Um, You know, joint health is a, is a different conversation. Um, but it could certainly be related. You know, this is, this is where it gets tricky very quickly, but I would say for range of motion, like being able to, you know, touch your toes, like the things that people say about yoga, I can't do yoga. I'm not flexible enough, you know, (laughs) or reaching your arm overhead, getting, you know, getting, you know, 180 degrees of flexion, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, not as technical as, as bringing out a goniometer, (laughs) Um, but, but, you know, range of motion that you could measure with, you know, just by looking. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. So, I mean, this sort of maybe not exactly leads us into my next question. It, it kind of, in a, maybe in a, in a little way does. I know in the, in the emerging perspective section, you start out with the definition of biotensegrity. And I remember that I had heard this term when I was reading a blog post years ago by um, John Sharkey, who's a clinical anatomist. And it was this kind of, I don't even know actually how I landed on Uh, I think I might've just Googled the term because I was reading a book where they mentioned it. And um, I was preparing to do this cadaver lab thing out in Arizona. Um, And it was just a concept that really impacted me in terms of looking at the body in this way. And I'd love for you to just talk a little bit for the listener about that concept, especially if it's something that they're not familiar with, this idea of biotensegrity. This is a tough question. Um, I mean, I guess part of what I'm part of what I'm thinking of is just the concept of tension being part of the structure of the body, mm-hmm. I think is something that when typically, even if you just look at anatomy outside of biomechanics is taught, it's kind of taught in this piecemeal way. So I think a lot of listeners who have dabbled in anatomy as by virtue of their 200 hour training, might be thinking of the body just from the perspective of bones, muscles, joints, tendons, ligaments, and maybe fascia. Mm -hmm. And in that understanding of parts, missing a concept like biotensegrity that looks at the whole and properties that exist in the whole because of the relationship of those parts to one another. So, you know, again, I know sometimes when I ask these questions, I'm sure it's a bigger ball of wax than we can get into in, in, in a snippet mm-hmm. conversation. <laughs> so no, it's not. I mean, it's, it, it's, it is, you're right. It's a big topic, but I'm, I'm just trying to kind of um, diplomatically, <laughs> I mean, you just defined it perfectly. I think Okay. Um, that, you know, it's this idea that the, the, the pre-stress that, that your, you know, your tissues are always under tension that when you are walking around your hamstrings and the fascia and all the connective tissue is under tension. And when you bend forward, you put it under more tension, mm-hmm. but it's the tent, like the tension doesn't go away. When you stand back up the tension, it just, it, it resets itself. You know, the joke that I give in the book is if, if you stretched it and it stayed that way, my hamstrings would drag on the street behind me when I walk, oh, yeah. because, you know, mm-hmm. I've stretched so much, but that doesn't happen. I somehow I stand up and they return to that, like, you know, they return to the, the resting tension. So, so I think that to me is, is the, the best description of biotensegrity. There's a little bit that I talk about in the, in chapter six, um, a little bit about just sort of the connectivity and, and this kind of distinction between ligaments and tendons and how they're they're This is Yap van der Waals work and how there's, they're more, right. more frequently they're dynamics. So that, that, that sort of like, like continuity, even with, um, contractile tissue, muscle tissue, I think is very interesting. And the concept of pre-stress is very interesting. And the concept of each individual structure being held in, in a balance of tension and compression changes the way you look at the spine. You know, if, if bending the spine doesn't just compress it, but it also, it's also still under tension, it, it changes your, your ideas about certain fragilities that we might've been taught about the body. So I think that's, that's, that's really all I 
covered in the book for, for a good reason. Mm-hmm. Um, I have had the fortune to go kind of down a deep dive of biotensegrity. And it's a very complicated and very mm-hmm. complex and, and very um, molecular. <laughs> yeah. And um, uh, very, requires a lot of math. I ended up a couple semesters ago, because I remember I said I was always in school. So a couple semesters ago, I enrolled at the university in non-Euclidean geometry. Oh boy. Um, which wow. I happened to just have all of the prerequisites to be able to register for that, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And it was, it got very complicated very quickly, but it's sort of the math that, that biotensegrity is based on. Yeah. And, and nobody's learned that. Like in all of my math and all of my history, everything was based in Euclidean geometry. Mm-hmm. So like, so, so all of a sudden we're doing geometry on spheres and, 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 you know, doing hyperbolic geometry and it's, it's a completely different world. And I, I had a, a, a nice time kind of tying it into, you know, the molecular structure and tying it into biotensegrity, but in the end, it's so specialized. It doesn't change the way I teach yoga poses, if that makes mm-hmm. sense, <laughs> you know? So, um, so I, I think it's a really cool concept. Yeah, uh, but I, I find in I've, I've just been doing a lot of mentoring for yoga teachers lately, and I remember saying that I was going to do a, like a, a little lecture for, for my group on biotensegrity, and one of the teachers said, "Oh, that's so cool! I love biotensegrity." And so I said, "Well, what is it that you like about it?" And she said, "Well, that it's all connected." And then I thought, "Well, you know, like anything more complex than that, it gets really complex very, very quickly." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so I tried to like not overwhelm in the book, and that's why mm-hmm. it's not a biotensegrity book. Um, right. And I, people can definitely go learn more about it, but I'm, I'm warning you, it's complex. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I mean, I love that it was in there. Uh, you know, from from the start when I saw it, I, I love that the concept is there, and, and of course, yes, leave it to you as to how much you want to kind of dive into it. And I think the fact that you've done the deep dive as the reader, we get to kind of yes have a taste of it. You know, yes, as, you don't need as, to take non-Euclidean geometry. <laughs> <laughs> thank God. Thank God. Um, and no, it just to be clear, it is a it is an integral concept. Um, yeah. It, it, it changes things quite a bit, but I don't know I, what I, we don't know how much it changes things. So mm-hmm. like, for example, in the world of biotensegrity, there's no such thing as a lever, right? When we've oh. all learned levers, right? So there's right. no such thing because it doesn't exist because it, it can't like it's in its, in its structure. Um, but the thing is, is I still know that if I'm holding something with a straight arm far away from me, it feels heavier than when I hold it closer. Right. So, so even though we can argue that there's, there's, that since we're biotensegrity structures, there's no levers in the body, but some basic biomechanical lever information is still useful. <laughs> it still applies. You know what I mean? We're still on earth with gravity. And so that's where I think it gets very technical, very quickly. There's like this arguing of, you know, well, classic biomechanics is wrong. And I'm like, yeah, I know it's wrong, but we don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater because the biotensegrity model tells us something different, but it doesn't invalidate everything else completely. (laughs) You know, I mean, it does make make, make things problematic, but there are still useful things that we can 
um, gain from biomechanics. So that's where I was like, it's a question because there's so much, there's so much to it and so many things to talk about. Yeah. And I mean, and there's that open-minded coachable framework that we have to have, especially when we're out there kind of gathering information. So I, I love that, you know, you kind of framed it that way. Like, Hey, we don't need to butt heads. We can just kind of appreciate from both pathways, what we can take away from it, that, that applies. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I've learned to embrace as I learn more about the body is that it's almost impossible to use words like always and never. And mm-hmm. I, I sense that sentiment. If I read things correctly in your book as, as sort of an ongoing theme. And I, when I was looking in my notes uh, in the book that I'd written in the margin and prep for our, our conversation today on, on one particular page, which I'll note is page 180, you wrote yoga alignment cues tend to fall into a correct or incorrect dichotomy. And you shared an example using chair pose and how the pose will look different depending on the limb length of the student. Um, that was something that until I looked at that page and the, gra- uh, the graphic representation of different student archetypes on that page, I hadn't actually thought of from the perspective of anatomy of students and, and presentation of that particular pose. So I thought this might be a good example to just give people a little bit of a taste of that concept in your book, if you wanted to just touch on that a little bit. Um, sure. Which part? <laughs> um, I think the fact, well, I think first, just the mere um, consideration and, and we could talk about it in the context of chair pose, just to narrow the scope for this conversation, but just the, just the acknowledgement that, a particular posture with its inherent angles will, according to this part in the book, will look different because the structure of person to person to person isn't identical. Mm-hmm. Even in from a, you know, if we kind of step back the 10,000 foot view of the anatomy, we say, well, I have a femur, you have a femur. I mean, maybe on some level, teachers appreciate that everybody's femur in the room, femurs are not going to be the same length or their connection between their femur and their acetabulum won't exactly be the same. I think the takeaway for me, again, high level, and I think for for listeners would potentially be helpful is just to acknowledge that we have to keep that thought in mind as we're teaching, especially if we're very schooled in a way of teaching that holds alignment and proper alignment to a high level in, you know, kind of our hierarchy of what our responsibility is in teaching. Mm Yeah, I, I said a lot. I feel no, like I, 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 I have a lot to say. I'm just trying to, um, my brain is processing because this is the time in my book club where I pull out the iPad and start sketching because visuals are a little easier. So I'm trying Got to, it. I'm trying to kind of clean up how I can say this with words. So let's, let's use chair pose. And l- let me just start by saying that I think most yoga teachers have, have at some point been exposed to the library, the fantastic library of images supplied by Paul Grilly online showing that bones are different. So I think it's a pretty um, pervasive piece of knowledge. 
I certainly, I was exposed to those ideas and, and some of the, some, I was at a conference where Paul was speaking, you know, this was probably 15 years ago. What, mm-hmm. uh, what I struggled with at the time was not knowing what to do with it and not knowing how to change mm. my language, my cueing language. Like I'd been taught these things about the pose. So, right. so now that now that that's being challenged, that if it's yeah. not supposed to necessarily point this direction, because mm-hmm. your anatomy might be different, then what do I, I have nothing left to say about the poses. Right. So I think that was a struggle for me for a very long time. And, and I certainly don't address that exactly in the book because that's for teacher training. You know what I mean? Like, like right. that's the book is just about, it's a textbook about yoga biomechanics, but I do think that the, the biomechanics gives you a little bit of that insight. And now I'm, again, I'm talking about biomechanics, not biotensegrity because right. again, it's different, right. but mm-hmm. I think there's a usefulness in it. So if we use chair pose, for example, if you have really long femurs and you're standing next to someone with very short femurs and you want to say something like, keep your knees over the ankles, right? Mm-hmm. Don't let the knees come forward or over the toes or whatever your cue is, doesn't mm-hmm. really matter. Mm-hmm. So you want to sit back. Somebody with very long femurs is going to take their pelvis and their trunk and their head, which sits on top of their pelvis, which is quite heavy. And it's going to be way further back behind their, um, behind their base of support, which is their feet, you know, Mm -hmm. than somebody who has short femurs. Mm. And so the pose is going to feel harder for them. Now there are other variables, depends on the, the glute strength and all kinds of things like, I'm, you know, so it's not limited just by that, but they're. It, the, the, there is going to be a longer lever. So it's going to feel heavier. That mass is going to be further away. Mm-hmm. Um, so they might do things like lean forward because if they lean forward, now they're taking some of their trunk and their arms and their head, and they're moving it forward closer to the base of support, possibly even in front of the base of support. Now it's kind of balanced out a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so now a teacher might say, well, lift your chest, lift your chest, but they can't lift their chest because then they'll fall backwards. So then what they try to do is lift their chest, but then because it feels so hard, maybe they push their knees forward. So, so like, because they have a lot of dorsiflexion, but if they don't have dorsiflexion, then they're kind of stuck. And so I think that's what, what, um, the biomechanics kind of shows you like, Hey, people are built different. They're going to be doing poses in different ways. And they're going to look different for a lot of different reasons that it's not really your job to micromanage. So let me ask you this. Why are you teaching chair pose? Like, what do you want them to do about chair pose? Maybe chair pose is not about, not about how much dorsiflexion they have and where their knees are. Maybe you're teaching chair pose because you want them to feel their quads and their glutes. So then can you talk about the pose in a way that puts that in the foreground mm. instead of where their, whether their feet should be parallel or apart or mm-hmm. together, you know, because those variables don't really make much difference. And maybe if you let someone, if you tell, kind of told someone what your intention for the pose was, they could organize their own bodies in a way that they're like, oh yeah, I, I, my legs are working. Got it. You know, like, right. like, and then you're less judgmental about how they look because you've given them sort of a direction. Right. Right. I love what that. you were asking. <laughs> yeah, that is actually, it's almost like in this conversation, you reframed how to approach teaching chair pose from a cues perspective. So instead of shining the light on the bony structure, now you're shining the light on the muscular action and allowing the student to have agency over how they want to organize the skeleton. 
Mm-hmm. Which and at the end of the day, like the the next question is like, why do we have these positional? <laughs> you know, like because yeah. they're not, and that's where again, like I would bring out the iPad and do some sketching. But like sure. you know, we say things like keep your knees over your ankle. Like let's just say Warrior Two. That's a classic example mm-hmm. I use. Mm-hmm. You know, keep your knee over the ankle in Warrior Two, but your back knee is not over your ankle. Right. So, so I like what this makes no sense, you know. So right. the knee is supposed to be over the ankle because because it's safer for your knee, but the what then the back knee is in big trouble. Um, right. And why? So and so when you start looking at again biomechanics and you start looking at levers and you start looking at ground reaction forces and lever lengths and with I don't make anyone do trigonometrical equations, I promise. But but mm-hmm. I show you the basics of it, and you understand what a moment arm is. You don't need to do the math. But like when you start understanding that, you're like, oh, I see. Okay, so maybe stacking joints is just one way to have less load, but it doesn't mean it's safer because Mm -hmm. we load the body all the time, you know? So like, so, so maybe it's just a, oh, this is, um, this is the way the pose looks in yoga. Like in yoga, we put the knee over the ankle, not protect your knee by putting your knee over your ankle. You know what I mean? Like, this is just the shape of warrior two. And instead of assigning this value to it, like if your knee caves in, you're bad. I, right. I, I promise you the knee can cave in. I've done it a million times. You know what I mean? And then the argument is always, well, well, there's always that last chance, you know? And I'm like, well, let's start talking about how we build resilience. You know, mm-hmm. you don't build resilience by avoidance. That's, we know that. Right. <laughs> so right. now that now, now we start having a more interesting conversation instead of like fighting about where the knee goes, it's like, okay, well, now we're going to talk about, you know, what, what this person's goals are, what this person's loading history is, you know, what are, what, what have they done in the past? How do they feel? What is, you know, what are they coming to yoga for? And let's put all of that into the the conversation. Mm -hmm. It's far more interesting. Yeah. I love that. And I love you talked about values in that last part of the conversation here. I mean, and I think it really, um, captures, you know, just, again, just loosening the mind a little bit around, maybe how we were trained, languaging we heard, certain values ascribed to certain positions that if we remove that value kind of attribute, we can take a deep breath and kind of look at things agnostically and say, okay, let's just look at this without labeling it and have a conversation about it. And, um, and that's, that's really, I, I really uh, appreciate having that new perspective. Um, well, I just, can I just add something to yeah, that? Sure. Cause I, I think that, I think that for me, the loosening of that language came from the understanding of biomechanics, Right. It, you know, but I mean it like I, because, but right. I mean, I remember, I remember teaching knee over the ankle in oh, one, sure. in, you know, in and I remember knowing it was safer. And I remember asking my teacher why, why, and the answer, I, I I'm pretty sure the answer was well, there's less shear forces on the knee, but I didn't know what a shear force was. Um, you know, I, I kind of knew what it was like, okay, yeah. yeah. So it's less shear on the knee. Got it. Okay. Like less sliding, whatever, you know, and that was it. I never thought about it to another, like, I never thought about it as well. Well, like, well, what if I go skiing as their shear forces? On, is that so like, right. or what if I go, you know, what if I go running downstairs or right. what if I go, you know, and, and how is force calculated exactly? And what are the, and, and, and how much shear force can the knee handle and what other activities mm-hmm. and how do I improve my ability to withstand shear forces? And like, that's the narrative that comes from biomechanics. So I think that it's like, 
you know, we're, we're taught these things about poses up front. And then the reasoning is oftentimes like rooted in biomechanics, but not it, the biomechanics education isn't there to help people kind of think critically about it. And that's, that's what this is so important to me for. Like, you know, there's, I love anatomy. Anatomy is a great subject, but anatomy absent of biomechanics, I think leaves people disempowered, I guess is what I'm looking for. Yeah. Well, and I think in a way they don't, I I think, and I'm including myself in the day, we don't know what we don't know. So you can, you can sort of leverage what you've been taught. And then if you choose to do a deeper dive and you're still under the anatomy awning, so to speak, you're going to get, you know, maybe a little bit of reinforcement around Mm -hmm. the thoughts that you were taught, Mm -hmm. you know, shared that were shared with you during your training. Um, without really going into this other area of study. And that's why, you know, the more we're talking and the more I'm having an opportunity to talk to you about the book, I'm really feeling like, wow, this book really needs to be part of basic training so that there is at least a, an inkling of. Well, I appreciate that. But at the same time, I would, I wouldn't, I'm not the one that says that because I do think, I do think it is a bit um, technical Sure. the average person who wants to share yoga with the world. So that's where like, I I actually advise people that want to use it for their teacher training. And I basically tell them to, you know, assign chapter one and chapter six Mm -hmm. and all the technical stuff in the middle, you should be able to summarize for them. And if you can't summarize it for them, then have me come in for an hour and summarize it for them. I can do it online. You know, like I'll bring out an iPad and do some really silly stick figures and it'll all be fine. But like yeah. to force someone to read that to me is like forcing someone to read an anatomy book cover to cover, mm-hmm. you know? So, so the study of anatomy, you know, you learn some basic muscles and some bones, you know, you learn some things and then you kind of go on, but you actually don't need that to, to teach yoga as, as long as you're not making anatomical assumptions, you know? Um, right. And so I think that's kind of, if, if you find that in your teaching style, you are making biomechanical assumptions, then this might be the book for you. But if you're showing up to the local, you know, senior facility and teaching people to breathe and move and love, then you don't really need this. <laughs> so right. I hate to like impose it on everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just for those that I think are, are, you know, making certain assumptions and want to know more about maybe why those assumptions exist. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, and we're kind of coming to the end here. So I'm actually going to skip ahead to my final question, which I actually think is kind of a, a good place to land because of what you were just mentioning. And, and that is, um, you know, you end the book by saying that you hope you've offered the reader a fresh perspective on yoga that softens a bit of the polarization that teachers might feel in pursuit of the right way over the wrong way. Um, and it's definitely opened my eyes tremendously in reading it. So I guess as we wrap up today, can you share a little bit more about what you hope teachers will take away from the experience of reading your book? Um, yeah, I mean, I think just a general sense, the body is adaptable. The body is resilient, um, mm-hmm. that we can, we can, you know, challenge and stress the body to get better at dealing with challenge and stress. (laughs) Um, You know, we know this, we know this with all kinds of things, you know, we know this with, you know, even things like allergies, right? You know, we, uh, this is not new information. We know Mm -hmm. this with muscles. We know that, that picking up heavy things make your muscles stronger. 
but somehow we forget that it also makes your bones stronger and your and your tendons stronger and you know so so it makes those things and your discs stronger um you know we tend to talk about things discs like jelly donuts and they're not like jelly donuts you know they're they're like cartilage <laughs> um, yeah. so they're not like that at all um so so i i want people to first of all gain this kind of appreciation for uh, what the body you know can can do um and then at the same time to be very clear and 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 honest about where yoga satisfies those those parameters that that spark adaptation and where it doesn't and that's not saying something bad about yoga like that is the, the this book is supposed to make you love and appreciate yoga but you know a standing forward bend is not a deadlift and and i you know like as long as you understand that those are different you know that that jumping in place does something different for your bones than standing flat on the floor doing some yoga poses those right. are different variables. And so instead of making promises or instead of, you know, because there, there's always like yoga is so dangerous, it's all over stretching, get injuries. And then there's yoga is so good for you. It makes you flexible and that makes you healthy. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like who, like right. this is, this is, don't put so much on yoga. <laughs> yoga is yoga. I remember I did a podcast uh, during COVID, I think it was like right in the beginning. And mm -hmm. the first question was what's what's lacking from yoga what's missing from yoga and i said nothing's missing from yoga like yoga's yoga it's perfect right. as it is what's missing is that that people are asking it to satisfy things that it doesn't you know it's like there's right. the argument of there's too much pushing in yoga not enough pulling right well, then do some pulling if you need that in your life that's not yoga's <laughs> fault you know like why are you blaming yoga for that right people want a, a, a 60 minute practice that makes them a better person helps them improves their breathing and their focus eliminate yeah. stress and gives them all of the cardiovascular and, uh, and and muscular strength that they need like wait a minute <laughs> right exactly exactly it reminds me too in the book where you talk about because i've had this thought myself and when i read it i i wanted just stand up and like applaud the book the sitting is the new smoking and i was like mm -hmm. well you know what about people who stand all the time yes, probably exactly. have complaints bartenders hairdressers mm -hmm. i mean i have friends that are in those those professions and uh they complain all the time about mm -hmm. various things so mm -hmm. i think in as you say in the book in our consumer nugget driven clickbait type world sometimes these narratives come out and then they just affix themselves and um I, I, I just think that the book gives us a chance to kind of take a deep breath and just open our minds and see where yeah. we end up. <laughs> That's what I hope, exactly that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I would love for you, I, I am on your, your mailing list, so I did get the um, update the other day about the book club, and I mm -hmm. thought it was just the perfect way for us to end today, just so you could tell the listeners about this really cool opportunity. Something that I, I don't typically see when, when teachers write books, uh, hey, I'm going to bring it to life through this experience. So I thought I would just give you a chance to share how people can get in touch with you and anything you want to share about uh, anything. The book club was something I came up with, but yeah. Awesome. I appreciate that. Sure. Um, so my website is my name, julesmitchell.com. Um, I have a bunch of different configurations. So if you spell it wrong, you'll probably still get there. <laughs> um, so, so that's good. Um, but the book club is something that I decided to do to kind of help the readers along. Mm 
Yeah. And we do a chapter a week. I came up with some discussion topics. Um, so those discussion topics are not in the book, but they're for free on my website. If you just go to the book club page, you can download. It's like a graphic, you know, you can download it. It has uh, like five or six questions per chapter just for you to kind of mull over while you're reading. Um, and in the book club, you submit questions to me online and um, in a form. And then I, I take that hour and create a nice narrative um, around that chapter. And I start with the questions and, and kind of tie the whole chapter together. So it's a, a verbal summary of each chapter, but it, it's driven by, you know, audience questions, participant questions. Got it. Um, and it's a webinar style. This is my 10th one. Wow. I started this before COVID existed. And mm -hmm. so it was kind of like a side thing while I was out traveling, I would, you know, I'd do it it's once a week for six weeks. And it was a webinar style. Um, since then, things are different. Everyone's used to being on Zoom and meetings and, you know, like, I, mm -hmm. so it's a webinar style means you're not on camera, you know, so it's a little different. Uh, and so I think that it's time to change the format. But what I do love about this format is since it is webinar style, it's really like 100% me and just lecturing for an hour straight. But mm -hmm. there is a chat field and you can interact with me. And so I, I talk, but I, you know, I answer your questions as they come up and I have a moderator who handles questions. Uh, it is very interactive still, mm -hmm. um, but this is the last time I'm going to do it this way, just because I think the world has changed. And so I need to restructure the whole thing. Um, mm -hmm. But so that the reason I'm saying it's special is that uh, in the past, I made you attend. You had to attend live because I didn't want it to be a watch the recording thing. Right. But since this is the last one, I'm just the last one in this format. I don't know what it's going to look like. It's time to you know reinvent it. So I'm letting anyone attend and you can just watch the recordings but still submit questions. <laughs> got, it, got it. And yeah. people find the link to enroll for that on your website. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everything's on my website, my teacher training, my mentoring program, all of that. But yeah, there's a drop down menu that says book and then book club. <laughs> so very easy. Got it. Now I purchased the book on Amazon. That would be, or on your web, or maybe I bought it on your website, but either of those. Places. If you bought it from my website, you bought it from Amazon, most likely. Um, yes, there is. You can get it directly from the publisher um, that you can. It comes from the UK um, sometimes. I don't know. Sometimes it's slower from them. Mm -hmm. But um, I know if you go to their website, you can sign up for their newsletter and then you'll get a discount code. So Got there's it. a benefit to going to directly to them. But Got I don't it. distribute it or anything like that. So if 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 you order it and you don't get it, <laughs> I yeah. didn't ship it to you. <laughs> yeah. And the publisher I see inside is Handspring. Yes. Yes. The Handspring. Yep. Got it. Yep. Well, thank you so much. This has been really interesting as I fully expected it to be. And, um, and I really appreciate your time and I'm sure the listeners will appreciate your time as well. I wanna thank you so much for joining me here on the podcast. And I will definitely um, look forward to any comments or feedback that we get. And, um, and I just wanna thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about my work. <laughs> of course. Well, thank you so much for putting it out there. And um, I look forward to having this go live uh, tonight and sharing uh, the conversation with teachers. So thank you so much, Jules. Thanks. Bye-bye.
Hi, everybody. Karen Fabian here. And thank you so much for listening to that episode. Before you hang up, before you disconnect and move on with your day, I just want to let you know, if you're like a lot of the yoga teachers that I talk to, you're looking for ways to break down anatomy into its key parts so that you've got an organized approach for your studying. Well, I'm going to tell you an easy way that you can get hold, get a hold of the topics that you should be studying. And they're all reviewed in my Learn Anatomy Challenge. This is a free video series that you can access online, watch the videos, download the guide that goes with it, and you'll essentially have an outline to shape the studying that you're doing because it takes the broad subject of anatomy and breaks it down into just the key topics that you need to know. So in order to get to the Learn Anatomy Challenge free video series, you're going to need to go to the special URL, the special web page that holds these videos. So if you're driving right now, you're probably not going to be able to obviously write this down. If you're able to write this down, I want you to just grab a pen and a piece of paper and just write down this URL. You can also send me a direct message on Instagram and I'll send you the link directly. If you're looking for the URL, you want to just go to it yourself. Uh, I'm going to give it to you right now. It is barebonesyoga.lpages.co forward slash learn anatomy challenge forward slash. And in between the words learn anatomy challenge are hyphens. So it's learn hyphen anatomy hyphen challenge and then forward slash. So again, I'll just read you the URL, barebonesyoga.lpages.co forward slash learn hyphen anatomy hyphen challenge forward slash. So that's the webpage that holds all of these videos. There's nine of them. Uh, and you can go through those and you can take notes. You can print out the uh, guide that goes with it. That would be uh, that will be a great companion guide to have in front of you as you're going through these videos. So again, if you have any trouble getting to it, just send me a direct message on Instagram and I'm happy to send you the link directly. Don't be on your own trying to study anatomy. Use this free video series to hone in on just the topics that you need to know. Good luck.